Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the LDS Church gets away with protecting a child molester. Yes, you may think that that title is clickbait, that that statement as a headline for a podcast cannot possibly be true. But I assure you, this is 100% accurate, and I'm going to spend the rest of the podcast explaining why it is I feel that way, and you can make up your own mind on the subject. I will tell you that this is perhaps the most disturbing story I have seen, at least recently, involving the LDS Church and the way they treat child abusers who are members of the church versus how they treat the victims of child molesters. All right, so this is based upon a story that came out last Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. I am recording this on Sunday morning, November 12th, 2023. I came into the studio yesterday. I spent a bunch of time researching. I already recorded this podcast and it was about an hour long. And I went back, I looked at it. It wasn't what I wanted. I was dissatisfied with it. I scrapped it. I'm coming back into the studio to re-record that episode. But let me give you the thumbnail version first before I get into the details. There's a member of the church, a man named Paul Adams. He lived in Arizona with his wife and small daughter. He worked for the Border Patrol. And when he was not working for the Border Patrol, he would spend time at home sexually abusing and even raping his young daughter. This went on for some time. Then he went to his bishop, feeling some kind of compunction about what it was he was doing. He went to his bishop and confessed to his bishop what it was that he was doing to his daughter in their home. The bishop did what a bishop is supposed to do in the Mormon church, which is he has a hotline that he's supposed to call in situations like this. That hotline goes directly to Curtin McConkie. There is a screener who screens calls. There's probably multiple screeners who screen calls, but he talks to a screener. The screener takes down some notes to keep the details fresh. It's a bit of a complicated story. And then the screener recognizes that this is one of the reports where the LDS church could be in trouble. And so what they do is they pass it on to an attorney who works for Curtin McConkie. And now the attorney talks to the bishop. The, um, by the way, some of this I am embellishing on, but only slightly, because I will tell you that what has been learned from the investigative reporting on this case is that when the screener gets the call, they either make no notes at all, or if they do make notes, they destroy those notes by the end of every business day. So there is nothing to connect them with this case. They are not a witness in this case, and they can't become a witness in this case. Then it goes to the attorney who talks to the bishop, and now the attorney can't be a witness in the case because they've got this attorney-client relationship going, right? Okay, this is how they play hide the ball. But what happened then was that the Curtin McConkie lawyer pulls up the statute that applies in Arizona where this happened because the bishop is operating under Arizona law because that's where he lives. He pulls up the statute, which we're going to look at in some detail here in a second. I'm just giving you the overview right now. This Curtin McConkie lawyer, whose name we have now too, and we'll mention that, what he did was he looked at the statute and he saw that the statute gives the bishop and gives the church permission to contact police in a situation like this. It is up to the church whether they want to call the police or whether they think that not calling the police is somehow a better move. The Curtin McConkie lawyer told the bishop, don't call the police, even though the statute gave the bishop permission to call the police. The move on the church was, don't call the police. So the bishop did not call the police and the molestation and sexual abuse of Paul Adams' daughter continued for another seven years. And in the middle of this, after this happened, 
Well, there's a new baby who gets born into the family. It's a little girl, a baby girl. And at the age of six weeks, Paul Adams starts molesting and abusing his six-week-old daughter in addition to his other daughter. There are pictures that he puts up on the internet of the abuse and government officials see them, they're able to track them down and they are able to arrest him and put him in jail where he killed himself prior to trial. So that's the Paul Adams story. What this shows to me is that when the church has a choice to make between protecting a child sex abuser of the worst kind and protecting the victim of the child sex abuse, the church will protect the child sex abuser. The church will protect the child molester. The church will not protect the victims of the molestation and of the abuse. And this is why I'm so livid right now. I don't know, maybe it came to me really strongly once I actually read the statute from Arizona, which we're gonna do here in a second, and to see the statute that the Curtin McConkey lawyer looked at, the very same statute, and see what he saw, to see that he could have said, call the police. Look, if I'm the lawyer Curtin McConkey and I'm talking to this bishop, he gets through his story and I say, okay, stop talking with me, we're done, hang up the phone, you call the police, you call 911, you call CPS, you get that kid out of the home, and ultimately, both kids out of the home, or you get the abuser out of the home, you get them separated, you protect the children. My God, what kind of church doesn't just protect the children when they can? Instead, they protect the child molester? What kind of church does this? That's my question that I'm struggling with. Now, let me find the, um, the statute. The statute I found had very small print. I copied and pasted it into a Word document so I could make it larger so that we can read it, okay? This is the statute in Arizona. And let me go ahead and find it here. I know I have it up on the screen, but I have to pull it up on the other screen so I can read it and so I can scroll. This is 13-3620, duty to report abuse, physical injury, neglect and denial or deprivation of medical or surgical care of nourishment of minors, medical records, exceptions, violation, classification, definitions. Okay, we start off with the general rule. Any person, any person who reasonably believes that a minor is or has been the victim of physical injury, abuse, child abuse, a reportable offense or, or neglect, that appears to have been inflicted on the minor by other than accidental means, or that is not explained by the available medical history as being accidental in nature, or who reasonably believes that there has been a denial or deprivation of necessary medical treatment or surgical care, or nourishment with the intent to cause or allow the death of an infant who is protected under section 362281, shall immediately report or cause reports to be made of this information to a peace officer. Let me take out all the, the gobbledygook in the statute that doesn't apply to our case that we're talking about. We're talking about child abuse. So here's what it says when you take that out. Any person who reasonably believes that a minor is or has been the victim of child abuse shall immediately report or cause reports to be made of this information to a peace officer, to the Department of Child Safety, or to a tribal law enforcement or social services agency for any Indian minor who resides on an Indian reservation. Except if the report concerns a person who does not have care, custody, or control of the minor, the report shall be made to a peace officer only. All right. Now, that is the general rule. Now, when it says any person, though, it actually doesn't mean any person. All right. I know that sounds strange because any person sounds like anybody. And that's how we understand it. They actually take this term person and use it as a legal term, and they define it below. I'm gonna skip the highlighted part where it gets to the definition. It says, for the purposes of this subsection, person means any physician, and then it lists a bunch of people in the medical field, to any peace officer and people in the law enforcement field, uh, parent, step-parent, or guardian of the minor, school personnel, domestic violence victim advocates, 
any other person who has responsibility for the care or treatment of the minor. So this is what is defined as a person. And I will tell you that that is the rule, okay? Any person who fits within that category and that definition, who reasonably believes, I mean, the child abuser confessed it to the bishop. He more than reasonably believes, he knows it. That a minor is being, has been the victim and is being the victim of child abuse shall immediately report or cause reports to be made of this information to the police, to a peace officer. Now let's get to this highlighted section because this is where it deals with the clergy. And this is what the church is banking on in order to protect a child molester. Here we have it in yellow highlight. A member of the church, excuse me, a member of the clergy, a Christian science, excuse me, a Christian science practitioner or a priest. Now the bishop of a church or state president would be a member of the clergy, it's a general term. But a, a member of the clergy who has received a confidential communication or a confession in that person's role as a member of the clergy, as a Christian science practitioner or as a priest, in the course of the discipline enjoined by the church to which the member of the clergy, the Christian science practitioner or the priest belongs, may. Now I put that in big font because that is the most important word in this paragraph for purposes of what I'm talking about today. The word may is an important word in the law. It means discretion. It means choice. It means you may do something. You don't have to, but you may do it. You are permitted to do it and be following the law. And by doing it, I mean the bishop calling the cops on this guy. So let me read this thing. The, uh, the member of the clergy, who receives this information by confession may withhold reporting of the communication or confession if the member of the clergy, the Christian science practitioner or the priest, determines that it is reasonable and necessary within the concepts of the religion. All right? So that's a lot of language. And they put in different people like Christian science practitioner and a number of other things. So here's what I want to do. I wanted to take that highlighted section, and I'm taking out the words that don't apply here. I'm not changing the language. I'm just taking out some words, and you can compare it. You'll see what I mean. So if you take out a bunch of those things, like the Christian science practitioner and the rabbi uh, and the priest that was in there, um, a member of the clergy who has received a confidential communication or a confession in that person's role as a member of the clergy in the course of the discipline enjoined by the church to which the member of the clergy belongs, may withhold reporting. You don't have to, it's up to you. You have the discretion. May withhold reporting of the communication or confession if the member of the clergy determines that it is reasonable and necessary within the concepts of the religion. All right, now I took the same thing and I inserted facts that are specific to this case. So instead of a member of the clergy, I say a Mormon bishop or stake president. A Mormon bishop or stake president who has received a confidential communication or a confession in that person's role as bishop or stake president in the course of the discipline enjoined by the LDS church, and I put belongs there, it shouldn't be there, may withhold reporting of the communication or confession if the bishop or stake president determines that it is reasonable and necessary within the concepts of the LDS church. So I went through that exercise to hopefully make it really, really clear to you that under Arizona law, the bishop had the authority to call the police immediately and not violate the law. And if he had done so, he would have protected that one daughter from seven more years of atrocious, horrific abuse at the hands of her father and the little baby that was born thereafter into the family. It would have saved her from being abused at all. Okay. So what's been going on here now? Let me take this off the screen. What has been going on is that there has been a, um, here it is. Okay, I'm taking this down. There we go. So what's been going on is that there was a news report which caused quite a stir that came out last Wednesday, November 8th. There was a judge's ruling in this case dismissing the lawsuit by the plaintiffs, i.e. on behalf of these young girls who were victimized by their father 
with the help and aid of the LDS Church, who was protecting the abusive father instead of protecting the children that he was abusing. They brought a lawsuit against him, and this was dismissed. And there was a report that went out about that last Wednesday, November 8th. Now, you've heard about this case before. It's been in the news earlier this year. In April, there was a news story that ran. And I had to go back, and actually it was a bit confusing even for me. I had to go back through the police reports, look at a number of things, and figure out what it is that's been going on here. And that's something that I want to share with you right now. I'm going to give you a thumbnail, okay? Sometimes for me, it helps to have a little thumbnail understanding of what it is that I'm going to be looking at so that when I look at it or listen to it on a podcast, I've got a better idea as to what it is that I'm listening to, how the pieces fit together. What happened was this. The lawsuit was filed on behalf of the children against the LDS church in Arizona. The first thing that happened is that the plaintiffs wanted to put their case together. And typically what you do is you request documents from the other side and you set up depositions of witnesses for the other side. And a deposition is, it's not trial, it's before trial, but it's in order to question witnesses under oath and have their testimony taken down by a court reporter or in some other method, video, whatever's agreed to. So that's what happens. And the attorneys on behalf of the children wanted documents from the church about Paul Adams, the abusers, discipline history, his church file, anything related to the excommunication. They also wanted to depose the bishop. There were two bishops, actually. There was the first bishop who reported it to the hotline, got his marching orders, don't call the police. And by the way, oh, let me just go ahead and finish that thought. And then there was a second bishop who was also meeting with the same guy, Paul Adams, who's confessing the same stuff to him, who calls the hotline and gets the same answer. Don't call the police. Well, it appears from earlier news reports that I think it was the first bishop may have remonstrated somewhat with the Curtin McConkie attorney over this. The first bishop is a doctor and a doctor has his own ethics or her own ethics that she has to abide by. And believe it or not, the ethics of doctors don't include protecting child abusers and molesters and child rapists in favor of protecting the victims. Doctors, by their creed, are there to help those who are in trouble, who need help, who need assistance. But in this case, the word he's getting from his church is don't do that. And the pity of this situation, as far as that first bishop goes, is that he violated his ethics as a doctor in order to follow the directive he was given by a church lawyer. I can't imagine what it's like to be him, waking up every morning, having to look yourself in the mirror. Yeah, but he made his decision, and this is the bed he's made, and he's going to have to lie in it for the rest of his life. Okay, let me find the first article after, after I complete the thumbnail. All right, so they, they want to get the depositions. They want to get the documents from the church. The church objects. The church says, no, you can't have either of those because of the priest penitent privilege in Arizona. So it's protected. And you can't either depose witnesses, which means you can't call them. If you can't depose them, you can't call them as witnesses. And you can't get any documents related to this guy's church discipline or his membership file because that's protected as well. Once again, the church going all out to protect this man, this child abuser. And now, because they protected the child abuser instead of the child victim, they end up on the wrong end of a lawsuit, which is where they should be. The trial court judge, and this is a bit of background, okay, leading up to what happened on Wednesday. The trial court judge agreed with the plaintiffs and ruled against the church and said, no, this priest penitent privilege was not made for situations like this. And so you church have to allow your bishop and the other bishop and the state president and probably the high council, because this guy was excommunicated. 
They excommunicated him, but they didn't call the cops. And members of the high council, you're going to have to all be subject to being deposed and testifying. And by the way, you got to hand over all your records too, because the penitent patient, excuse me, the clergy penitent privilege doesn't cover that. So what happened was then, that's the trial court. The church appealed that ruling to the Court of Appeals in Arizona. The Court of Appeals in Arizona reversed the trial court and said, no, we agree with the church. You don't get to depose these witnesses. You don't get to call these witnesses. You don't get to get any of these documents that you need to prove your case. So then the plaintiffs appealed that decision to the Arizona Supreme Court. So there's three levels. You've got your trial court level, you've got the appellate court level, and then on top of them all, you got the Supreme Court. So now the plaintiffs, because the appellate court ruled against them in reversing the trial court, appealed that decision to the Arizona Supreme Court. And the Arizona Supreme Court affirmed the Court of Appeals, which meant they disagreed with the trial court judge. And the Arizona Supreme Court said, yep, the um, clergy patient privilege, it covers this. It covers this. So the church doesn't, again, now doesn't have to submit witnesses to be deposed, doesn't have to provide documents. The plaintiff's case is kneecapped at this point. How are they going to prove their case when the witnesses who have the information that they need to prove it are unavailable to them? How are they going to prove their case when the documents that they need to prove their case are unavailable to them? They're dead in the water. So the Supreme Court then issues that ruling, remands it down to the trial court to proceed with the case consistent with the Supreme Court's ruling, which is none of that comes in. None of those people testify. So now that they don't have any evidence to speak of to show the wrongdoing of the church in this, the church brought a motion. Let me back up here a second, okay? The ruling from the Supreme Court hit the news last April, and that was when we last heard about this case in the news. What's been going on behind the scenes is what I'm going to describe to you now. What's been going on behind the scenes is that it was remanded from the Supreme Court down to the trial court level. The plaintiffs have no evidence. The church now brings a motion against them to dismiss the case. It's a motion for summary judgment. It says, if you look at all the evidence that they have, all the evidence that they're allowed to have, all the evidence that the Supreme Court of Arizona has permitted them to have, which is basically nothing now, the church's summary judgment says, if you look at all their admissible evidence, they don't have a case. And the trial court judge had to agree with them and dismissed the case. And that's what happened last Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. And that made the headlines again. Okay. I mean, once the Supreme Court issued its ruling, it was pretty much a fait accompli what was going to happen down at the trial court level because the ruling eviscerated the plaintiff's case. So I want to go through these articles here. This one is going to be from April of this year. And I'm going to present that on the screen. And here it is with some great, uh, what, ads at the top. Let me go to this. I'll scroll down past the ads. Here's the title. Arizona court upholds clergy privilege in child abuse case. There's a picture of the temple. It's an AP article. The journalists are Michael Resendez, whose name you may know from Spotlight, and Jason Deeren. This is April 11th, 2023. This is the Arizona Supreme Court's ruling eviscerating the plaintiff's case. The Arizona Supreme Court has ruled that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can refuse to answer questions or turn over documents under a state law that exempts religious officials from having to report child sex abuse if they learn of the crime during a confessional setting. The ruling was issued April 7th, but not released to the public until Tuesday. A lawsuit filed by child sex abuse victims accuses the church, widely known as the Mormon church, two of its bishops and other church members. And I expect that has to do with people who were in the high council excommunication proceeding 
and other church members of conspiracy and negligence in not reporting church member Paul Adams for abusing his older daughter as early as 2010. This negligence, the lawsuit argues, allowed Adams to continue abusing the girl for as many as seven years, a time in which he also abused the girl's infant sister. Lynn Cadigan, an attorney for the Adams children, who filed the lawsuit, criticized the court's ruling. Unfortunately, she says, this ruling expands the clergy privilege beyond what the legislature intended by allowing churches to conceal crimes against children, she said. Now, in a statement, the church concurred with the court's action. <clears throat> of course, they did because it was in their favor. And here's their statement. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints agrees with the Arizona Supreme Court's decision, the statement said. We are deeply saddened by, by the abuse these children suffered. Okay, that's a lie. And so much about this case is troubling to me. Not the least of which is the church's statements in response. We are deeply saddened by the, the abuse these children suffered. No, you're not. You're the ones who told the bishop not to call the police. You're not saddened by anything. You caused this. Every single instance of abuse after it was confessed to the bishop and could have called the police under the law in Arizona and stopped it immediately, then and there. Every single act of abuse against this girl and then later against her baby sister was caused by the church directing the bishop to not call the police. So don't sit there and tell me that you're saddened by it. You caused it. It goes on. We are deeply saddened by the abuse these children suffered. I'd like to make them suffer some abuse, I'll tell you that. And then it says, the church has no tolerance of abuse of any kind. Bull crap. No tolerance? You caused it. You're not just tolerating it. You're promoting it. You're protecting it. Excuse me. Yeah. This is what was happening yesterday and why I had to record this thing again today. So I'm going to try and keep my cool as best I can. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. I'm going to read that again. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints agrees with the Arizona Supreme Court's decision. This is the official statement by the church. We are deeply saddened by the abuse these children suffered. The church has no tolerance of abuse of any kind. The article goes on. Adams had also posted videos of himself sexually abusing his daughters on the internet, boasted of the abuse on social media, and confessed to federal law enforcement agents who arrested him in 2017 with no help from the church. Law enforcement found this guy out, not only with no help from the church, law enforcement found this guy out in spite of the church protecting him. That's what happened. They not only got no help from the church, they did it in spite of the best efforts of the church to keep law enforcement from finding out about it. The article goes on. Those actions prompted Cochise County Superior Court Judge Laura Cardinal to rule on August 8, 2022, that Adams had waived his right to keep his 2010 confession to Bishop John Herod, that's the first bishop, John Herod, H-E-R-R-O-D, there's more than a little irony in that last name, isn't there? To keep his 2010 confession to Bishop John Herod secret. So that's the paragraph that says that the trial court judge initially says, nope, Paul Adams, you've waived your right to keep that secret. It's coming in. The bishop's going to get deposed. Taken together, this is from the court's original order at the trial court level. Taken together, Adams' overt acts demonstrate a lack of repentance and a profound disregard for the principles of the church, Cardinal said in her ruling. His acts can only be characterized as a waiver of the clergy penitent privilege. And that was when the church appealed it. But the article goes on. Clergy in Arizona, as in many other states, are required to report information about child sexual abuse or neglect to law enforcement or child welfare authorities. An exception to that law, known as the clergy penitent privilege, 
allows members of the clergy who learn of the abuse through spiritual confessions to keep the information secret. Once again, notice that word allows. It doesn't require them to keep it secret. It gives them the option. They can keep it secret or they can call the police. The church has based its defense in the lawsuit on the privilege, the clergy penitent privilege, asserting that Herod, the bishop, and a second bishop who learned of Adam's confession, Robert Kim Mousey. So those are the names of the two bishops. Robert Kim is apparently his nickname. It's in quotation marks, but his last name is Mousey, M-A-U-Z-Y. Had no legal obligation to report him for abusing his older daughter and appealed Cardinal's ruling. That's when he went to the Court of Appeals. On December 15th, this is last year, 2022, on December 15th, the Arizona Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the church, saying it did not have to turn over disciplinary records for Adams, who was excommunicated in 2013. The appeals court also ruled that a church official who attended a church disciplinary hearing could refuse to answer questions from the plaintiff's attorneys during pretrial testimony. That's the deposition, pretrial testimony, based on the clergy penitent privilege. So both bishops and anybody present in the high council that excommunicated this guy, they can refuse to testify. And guess what? They all did. Why? Because they're all getting legal advice from the same law firm. They're there to protect the church and the victims be damned. Okay. Lawyers representing the Adams girls and one of their brothers took the case to the Arizona Supreme Court where they did not prevail according to the April ruling. And that's what this article is about. In an unusual move, Cadigan, plaintiff's attorney, said attorneys for the three Adams children intended to file a motion asking the Supreme Court to reconsider its ruling. I don't know if they did that. If they did, it didn't help. That's why it would be an unusual move. Generally doesn't help. Motions to reconsider. An Associated Press investigation of the clergy privilege shows it exists in 33 states and that the Mormon church, often joined by the Catholic church, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and other faiths, have successfully lobbied against attempts to reform or eliminate it. Okay, now that is the end of that article. And that is reporting last April 2023 on the Supreme Court of Arizona tubing the plaintiff's case by suppressing all this evidence that they need to prove it and then remanding it back to the trial court. Well, things continue to go on in the trial court. And let me see if I can find this other article now from last Wednesday, November 8th. Because that's where the trial court now, in response to the church's motion for summary judgment, grants the dismissal that the church requested. Here we go. And I'll share this on the page. Okay. Let me get to this. Oh, that's the same one. Excuse me. Let me get rid of that one. Let me go to this one. And you'll see it's a little bit confusing because they have the same formatting and even the same picture of the Salt Lake Temple on the front. I'll bring that up. And put this on the screen. There you see, it's the same format, same picture of the temple. It would be easy to confuse these two, like I just did. But you got to look at the date. And the date on this. First off, the title. Once again, AP. Court cites clergy penitent privilege in dismissing child sex abuse lawsuit against Mormon church. There's a picture of the temple, once again, by Michael Resendez and Jason Deeren. This one dated November 8th, 2023, last Wednesday. An Arizona judge has dismissed a high-profile child sexual abuse lawsuit against the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, ruling that church officials who knew, who knew, who knew that a church member was sexually abusing his daughter had no duty to report the abuse to police or social service agencies because the information was received 
during a spiritual confession. In a ruling on Friday, Cochise County Superior Court Judge Timothy Dickerson, I don't know what happened to the other judge. It's a different judge now at the trial court level. But this is Judge Timothy Dickerson said the state's clergy penitent privilege excused two bishops and several other officials with the church, widely known as the Mormon Church, from the state's child sex abuse mandatory reporting law because Paul Adams initially disclosed during a confession that he was sexually abusing his daughter. Dickerson, the judge, wrote in his opinion, his decision, church defendants were not required under the mandatory reporting statute to report the abuse of Jane Doe 1 by her father because their knowledge of the abuse came from confidential communications, which fall within the clergy penitent exception. Although the church excommunicated Adams, its decision to withhold his abusive behavior from civil authorities allowed him to continue abusing his daughter for seven years, during which he began abusing a second daughter, starting when she was just six weeks old. I hope you're proud of yourself, Mormon Church. I hope you're proud of yourself, Curtin McConkie. I don't know how you can look yourself in the mirror. I have no idea, just as a human being, how you can do something like this and continue on as if everything's okay. And I sure as hell can't understand how you can pretend that you are Jesus Christ's church and that you are his apostles and that you do these things to children. You did this to this child for seven more years and to her baby sister as surely and as certainly as if you were the one doing the abuse, the abuse yourself. Calming down. The article continues. Paul Adams recorded his abuse of his daughters on video and posted the pornographic videos on the internet. Why? Because the Mormon church protected him and not his children. The abuse stopped only when Homeland Security agents arrested Adams in 2017 in Arizona, after authorities in New Zealand and the United States traced one of the videos to him. Adams died by suicide in custody while awaiting trial. Well, maybe there's some justice in this case, though it's certainly delayed. Why is it delayed? Mormon Church. Lynn Cadigan, an attorney representing the Adams children who filed the 2021 lawsuit, said she will appeal the ruling. Well, I wish her luck, but based upon the fact that this is the same issue that she's already lost on, it's effectively the same issue that already went up to the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals ruled against her, and then the Supreme Court of Arizona ruled against her, I don't think there's a lot of chance that they're going to change their ruling. I hope that what she's suggesting is that her appellate goals are beyond the state system and even into the federal system, because maybe she'll get some relief there from federal judges. But we'll have to see how that plays out. Okay, so she says she's going to be appealing the ruling. And she says, Lynn Cadigan, the attorney for the plaintiffs, how do you explain to young victims that a rapist's religious beliefs are more important than their right to be free from rape? It's a trenchant way of putting it. I wonder, how do I explain to my audience that the LDS church is a Christian church when they protect child rapists instead of their victims? I'm still trying to get my head around that. I don't understand what person does that, what church does that. But obviously the answer has to be the Mormon church. The LDS church does that. Okay, in a prepared statement, the church said, okay, now this is going to get me going again. In a prepared statement, the church said, we are pleased with the Arizona Superior Court's decision granting summary judgment for the church. Summary judgment, that's their motion to dismiss. I described it earlier. And it's clergy and dismissing the plaintiff's claims. We're pleased about this. We're pleased we got away with protecting the child molester. Remember, the title of this is LDS Church Gets Away with Protecting Child Molester. I told you at the top of the show that this is what I believe, that this is not clickbait, and I would describe to you exactly why it is that each and every word in that title is true. The LDS church protected a child molester. 
and allowed him to continue to molest his children for years and do unspeakable things and film it and put it on the internet. That's what the LDS church did. And now they're going to say, we are pleased with the Arizona Superior Court's decision granting summary judgment for the church and its clergy and dismissing the plaintiff's claims. And then they say this. On top of that, they say this. Contrary to some news reports and exaggerated allegations, the court found that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its clergy handled this matter consistent with Arizona law. Is that really what's important here? That you be found to have acted consistent with the Arizona law? We really have in the Mormon church today, a church that's run, it's of the attorneys, by the attorneys, and for the attorneys. That's all it is. It is a legalistic religion. It's in many ways similar to the Pharisees of Jesus's day. Being so involved in the technicalities and the hyper-technicalities of what's legal and what's not, that you end up hurting people and hurting children in the name of being righteous. That's what pissed Jesus off so much about the Pharisees, because they used religion to justify their evil deeds. Isn't that what the LDS Church is doing now? They're using religion to justify protecting a child molester and allowing his victim to be molested, abused, and raped for seven more years and adding new kids into it. All right. By the way, another thing that's important to recognize here is that this statement, one of the reasons it hacks me off so much, when it says that contrary to some news reports and exaggerated allegations, the court found that the church handled this matter consistent with Arizona law. Well, guess what? If they had called the police immediately when Paul Adams confessed to the bishop, had them get involved, had him out of the house, protected those children, if the church had done the right thing, the only right thing to do under that circumstance, there is no other course that has any moral ethics to it. It is immoral what they did. If they had done that and protected the child and called the police, they could make the same statement. They could also say, if they had done the right thing, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints handled this matter consistent with Arizona law. Because they had the choice. If they called the cops, that's consistent with the law. If they didn't call the cops, well, that's consistent with the law as well. They weren't following the law. They are given the option by the law and they chose to protect the child molester. Good job. Good job. It makes me sick to my stomach what you have done in this case. And if you've done it in this case, I can only imagine how many other cases you've done this in. All right, well, I'm going to take this thing. Hang on, excuse me. Oh, it does continue. I'm sorry. An investigation by the Associated Press last year cited the Adams case while revealing a system the Mormon Church uses to protect itself from costly lawsuits by keeping instances of serious child sexual abuse secret, at times allowing the abuse to continue for years, harming or endangering children. The investigation highlighted the use of a church helpline used by bishops to report instances of child sex abuse to church officials in Salt Lake City. Church workers fielding the calls keep no records or destroy them at the end of each day, according to church officials. This is what the church said. I'm not making this up. These people aren't making it up. This is what the church has said. And they refer serious instances of abuse to attorneys for the church who rely on a second privilege, the attorney-client privilege, to continue keeping the abuse secret. During the course of its investigation, the AP revealed that a retired Utah legislature, an attorney with a law firm of Curtin McConkie, 
advised Bishop John Herod, first bishop, not to report Adam's abuse to civil authorities. After Herod contacted him through the church helpline. In the Mormon church, a bishop's responsibilities are roughly equivalent to those of a Catholic priest, although Mormon bishops are lay people. Church records disclosed during the lawsuit showed that attorney Merrill Nelson, Merrill Nelson, attorney Merrill Nelson, held multiple conversations with Bishop Herod and a second bishop, Robert Mousey, over a two-year span and recommended they withhold the information from civil authorities based on church doctrine and the clergy penitent privilege. Merrill Nelson, I'm not going to say what I think of you. I'm not going to say what I think of you. All these words are going through my mind. I'm not going to say them here. You're despicable. You're disgusting. <sighs> but you'll probably get promoted to general authority. Okay. The AP found that 33 states exempt clergy of any denomination from laws requiring professionals, such as teachers, physicians, and psychotherapists, from reporting information about child sex abuse to police or child welfare officials if the abuse was divulged during a confession. Although child welfare advocates in some states, advocates in some states, excuse me, although child welfare advocates in some states have backed legislation to eliminate the privilege, lobbying by the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, and the Jehovah's Witnesses has successfully persuaded lawmakers to maintain the exemption. This loophole in mandatory child sex abuse reporting laws has resulted in an unknown number of predators being permitted to continue abusing children for years, despite having confessed the behavior to religious officials. In some cases, the privilege has been invoked to shield religious groups from civil and criminal liability, like here, after the, the abuse became known to civil authorities, the AP found. Cadigan, plaintiff's attorney, Cadigan argued that the church interpreted the clergy penitent privilege more broadly than the state legislature intended in the Adams case by applying it to others in the church, in addition to Bishop Herod, who learned of Adams' confession. They included Adams' wife, Liza, or Liza, L-E-I-Z-Z-A, and members of the church disciplinary council that excommunicated Adams. But Dickerson ruled that those exchanges collectively amounted to a confidential communication or a confession. So that's the end of that article. Once again, great reporting by Michael Resendez and Jason Deeren for the Associated Press. That is the end of today's episode. It is the most troubling, disturbing, sickening story that I have ever had to cover regarding the Mormon church. I'm going to leave it at that. I think the facts speak for themselves. Anything else I would say in addition to it would probably only detract from the horrific nature of what the LDS church did to these two girls. I mean, let's say that you are, you're a trained lifeguard. You, you swim miles and everything. You train to save people. You're not on duty one day. You're walking along the side of a lake, enjoying the weather. You look out in the middle of the lake. There's a little girl who's out there. She's screaming. She's thrashing. She's drowning. She's crying for somebody to save her. And you know that it's a lifeguard. You could jump right in, swim out there and save her. No questions asked. You have the power. You have the ability. But you, as the lifeguard, can you imagine just turning your head and keep walking and letting that girl drown. That's what the church did here, except the girl didn't drown. She went through seven years of hell because you refused to save her. Explain that to me sometime, will you? In fact, I wanna make an invitation right now 
for a, a representative of the church to come on this show and explain to me and explain to you why it was that protecting this child molester, this horrific individual, was more important to the church than saving his victims. That's what I want you to do. Come on the show, explain it to me, explain it to all of us. We're very eager to hear how it was that you thought this was the right thing to do. Okay, well, that is about all for tonight. Thank you for listening. Please hit like, please hit scribe, subscribe. I'm sorry, this is very, very disturbing to me. I think most of you who know me and follow me know that um, I have a pretty good sense of humor about things. I can laugh at things that other people wouldn't laugh at. Part of that's from being 34 years as an attorney in the criminal prosecution and then in the criminal defense field. I've seen a lot. I haven't seen this. This is very, very disturbing, even for someone who has seen as much as I have. Okay, but once again, that's about all for tonight. Please hit like, please hit subscribe. That's why there hasn't been a lot of joking tonight because I don't find this funny at all. Thank you so much for watching. Please share this with other people. Other people need to know that this is what the LDS Church does. And it's what they did here. There's no question about the facts. This is what the LDS Church did. And with this ruling from last Wednesday, November 8th, the LDS Church got away with protecting a child molester. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.